Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series for leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces where people can do their absolute best. Each week, I will interview a leader who epitomizes the ability to empower others to lead and create amazing workplaces, environments and communities because of the skills that they possess. In these interviews, I try as much as possible to let our guests do all the talking as they are the stars and not me. I trust you enjoy the lessons and wisdom each guest shares, and if you're like me, listen to the interviews a number of times to capture some of the true gems of leadership we hear each week. Welcome back to the next episode of the Courage to Lead interview series. Today's guest, Aidan Grimes, is someone very special, someone I know personally and who has touched thousands of lives for the better. Aidan Grimes is an accomplished coach who, through his unique understanding of history, has helped many people change their perception of the past, equip them to live in the present, and empower them to design the future they wish to have. In 2022, Aidan led his 125th Kokoda Track Expedition in Papua New Guinea, 99 kilometers of the most challenging terrain you'll ever see, and has inspired all participants as they encounter the mental and physical challenges of the track. He remains the only Kokoda operator to have a 100% completion rate. He has worked with many large corporations including Microsoft, Ericsson, Intel, Apple and the New South Wales Police, to name just a few. He has worked with many sports organisations as well. In 2012, he was awarded the RSL Anzac of the Year Award and in 2019, he was awarded the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal by the Papua New Guinea Governor-General in recognition for his contribution to the Kokoda Track and Papua New Guinea. This interview goes deeper into who Aidan Grimes is and how this story happened. Aidan comes from Ireland and came to Australia at a relatively young age, connecting with the Australian wartime history, instilling him with a passion to tell the story of our Australian diggers, our soldiers. At that time, Aidan had a limited education from Ireland. Aidan's interest in wartime history zeroes in on the particular story of the 400 reservist diggers who defended the Kokoda Track in Papua New Guinea against the might of the then undefeated 2000 hardened soldier strong Japanese army, preventing the Japanese from continuing into Australia in World War II. What is enlightening about this story is that Aidan opens up about him living with Asperger's and ASD, the autism spectrum disorder. People with Asperger's do not recognise facial expression and deal with logic, not emotion. They are often seen as outcasts and ostracised by society simply because they are different. They normally have an area of expertise that they specialise. In Aidan's case, his area of expertise has been the history of World War II and human performance. Aidan used his opportunities in Australia to complete a university degree in sports science focusing on high performance and now intends to further his education into counselling others who need support, doing a PhD using history and high performance to get people more active in today's world. This interview ends with a great tip for all of us if we want to succeed. Create and build your own self-belief. Take the time to get to know you. Make your mark and throw your stones as hard as you can. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. It was truly inspiring 
and enlightening about what you can do with your life. And just to give a little bit of um, kind of personal history, Aiden um, led, uh, my son and I uh, were part of the 2014 Police Legacy Trek in just before Anzac Day across the Kokoda Trek led by Aiden. And it is um, probably the most uh, life-changing experience that, that you could ever do. So it's a pleasure to have you on the show today, Aiden. Let's get straight into it. How does Aiden Grimes, like you're obviously Irish, become this person? And I'm in your hands. We're in your hands, mate. Over to you. Okay. First of all, thanks, Alan, for having me here. Um, it's an interesting story. I came from Ireland in 1987. So when I arrived in Australia in 1987, it got to a stage in Ireland where I'd found, well, Ireland was a small nation. And for somebody like me, I need to grow. I need to have opportunities to, to explore what's out there. So I've always been like that. I've always been driven to, to see what else is out there outside the square, you know. And that became my life philosophy. So when I arrived into Australia in 1987, I saw that as an opportunity for a second chance. And so later in 1987, I would attend the welcome home service for the Vietnam vets. And I'll never forget it because I stood in Pitt Street in Sydney as all these old blokes now were finally given a welcome, you know, and I could see some of them in wheelchairs. I could see some of them on walking frames, you know, and I could see them on walking sticks. And often, you know, often people would walk out and try and help them, but they pushed them away because they still had that level of pride. They said, you know, you could see it. And that that was huge for me because I stood there and I was thinking, but this is wrong. You know, it's taken until 1987 to finally welcome these now old men back from a war that happened in the 70s and 60s, you know. Yeah. And I couldn't believe that. And that left a huge impression with me because from where I come from in Ireland, we know our history. And history is very important because if you don't know where you came from, how do you know where you're going? That's always been my philosophy. Yeah. So I looked at there that day and I made a promise. I made a promise that this is my new country now that's adopted me. And I'm actually going to spend a lot of time understanding Australian history and getting to know it. But I would repay that history. I would repay that opportunity in more ways than one later on in life, of course. So on that day, I met an old bloke who had fought in Vietnam and he was sitting there and I gave him most of my money that I brought out from Ireland. And I just that, I felt that was the right thing to do, to be honest with you. And so my story in Australia kind of started from there. And then what I did was it wasn't too long after that that the earthquake happened in Newcastle. And so I ended up getting a job as a painter. Now, I didn't know one end of a paintbrush from another, but somehow I was able to talk my way into a job and that's what I used to do. So. I went up to Newcastle and what we were doing was we were rebuilding Newcastle after the earthquake. But what I was finding was that there was also unscrupulous builders. And what they were doing was they were actually, they'd get on the roof of a house and they'd see, well, okay, there's a house next door that has a problem with a chimney. And they'd knock on an old folks home and say, look, we know you don't have insurance. So what we'll do is if you sign your house over to us now, we'll fix your house and, and away they go. And I couldn't believe it. So what I did was we got a list from the local priest as to how many people were in this situation. So then what we did was we go, we do a normal shift and then in the afternoon we go and fix these houses for free so they wouldn't become victims to these particular builders. And so the story kept growing, you know. So eventually I decided that, well, while I was painting the University of New South Wales, I looked at some of the students and I said, well, what's the difference between them and me? Why can't I go to university? Now, coming from Ireland and coming from Dublin, where I came from, 
it's very, very hard at that time to get a start at university. You had to be something special and normally you had to be upper class as well. So coming from a working class background in Dublin and in some cases the slums of Dublin, well, that opportunity was never going to occur. So I was painting the university one day and I decided, you know what, I'm going to go to university. And so that's how my life changed. So in the end, I would eventually get into university and University of New South Wales. Yeah. And I'd study sports science. So then that started to change my shape. And then I would grow through that, through the education factor. And then before I knew it, I had this um, ability to be able to study and more importantly, be able to teach and influence people. So I remember when I came out of university, the CEO of Microsoft at the time, he headhunted me to run a wellness program for them. And so I managed to get that job at Microsoft and then I start my company and I'd specialize in health and well-being for Microsoft. And then they saw where that was going and then it went Australia wide and eventually it would become Australia, Asia, Pacific region. And so there was other companies as well, like the IT informa the, sorry, the information technology companies at that time were also looking at ways of keeping their staff. So offering incentives such as we look after your health and well-being, we care for you, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. And so they, they would chase me up to deliver these kind of programs. So one of those programs was we got to a stage where people would say to me, says, Aiden, how do I know when I'm fit? And I'd say, well, that's a great question. You know, normally we do assessments and that kind of stuff, you know, but there is another way. And that is if you can do an event, well, if you can complete the event, obviously, well, that shows you you've got fitness, right? And so that's where it started. The CEO of Microsoft one day turned around and he says, Aiden, you know, we want to do a leadership program. What about taking us up the Coca-Cola track in Papua New Guinea? And, you know, the Coca-Cola, that's how much the, nobody knew a lot about this place. Yeah, yeah. In those days, there was no such thing as Google. You actually had to do the hard yard. So I ended up getting a little plane, a little plane up into the jungles. And I'll never forget it because as the little plane came in over the mountains, it's like something you'd see in Colombia. You know, it was, yeah. it was incredible, absolutely incredible. So it came in and it bounced along the airstrip. And there was another Australian guy on it as well. And when we got off that plane, we were met with a local contingent, so a local tribe, and they had all their bones through the noses, they had all the feathers, the headdresses, and it was primitive, you know? Yeah, yeah. I watched this guy get out, and he went in front of me, and clearly the leader of the tribe came up to him, the chief, and started talking to him. And this guy started talking about, mate, you need to get this, and you need this, and you, maybe if you have a fridge, you can keep your food, and you can, all this sort of stuff. And I sat back, and one of the key learnings was, observation, the importance yeah. of observation. And so when it was my turn, he turned around to me and I introduced myself to him. And I said to him, I said, what do you need? And he said to me, Aidan, we don't need anything. And it was one of the greatest learnings I've ever had. We don't need anything. And I said, okay, so tell me, how do you live? And he said, well, look, in our culture, how it works is, is that we plant a crop in the ground, as long as it rains, then we have got food. Now, the strong people will go out and become farmers, and those who are elderly will stay at home in our villages with our young kids, and they'll teach our way. So that means our culture continues to survive many, many, many years after. So that's what keeps us going. We have a sense of community, and we know exactly who we are. And that was the, the kicker for me. That was amazing, because here was the greatest learning all because I asked a question, what do yeah. you need? Yeah. Now, many, many, many years later, I would learn that, well, technically, that's a needs analysis. 
<laughs> you can actually make a lot of money out of that, Alice. <laughs> Needs analysis. And so it, it kind of grew from there. So I, I walked the Kokoda track, and I call it the Kokoda track out of respect to the diggers who fought up there. So I've got over 70 interviews with them that they all refer to it as a track. So when I walked the track, I fell in love with what the whole story was about. And it was about being totally outnumbered. It was all about belief, belief in your mates. It was about the endurance, keep going. It was about the immense sacrifice, but more importantly, the courage of people. The courage of not only the Australians, but the Papua New Guineans fighting side by side with them. And I, I absolutely fell in love with that story. And it was everything I believed in. At that point in time, I was an athlete and I was competing in all sorts of different events. And a lot of them are long distance events. So I'd run 100Ks, no problem. And I was, had this level of fitness that I, I seemed to have been born with. So with this journey, because I'm also on the Asperger's uh, spectrum, it also gave me the opportunity to start looking at the patterns. So patterns for me is a big thing. So what kicks my engines is that, well, if this happened, then why didn't we see the patterns that were leading towards this happening? Yeah. So that's what kicked my engine. So later on, of course, that would become a huge experiment for me. So when I walked the track the first time and I got to understand some of the history, I was smart enough to come back home and then track down Ralph Honor who was one of Australia's greatest leaders, and everybody should know who he was. I tracked down Stan Bissett, I tracked down Chaz Butler, Phil Roden, and many of these names that had fought on the Kokoda track but had made it back home. And they gave me all their interviews, they gave me all their insights, they gave me the diaries, they gave me their stories of what actually happened on the track. And it blew me away because I now was in a position where I'd been equipped with the history, and the history is so powerful when it's delivered correctly. Because ultimately what you're doing is you're giving people an opportunity to understand that this country didn't just appear, that the country that we live in today and the freedoms that we have in Australia today, well, you know what, somebody had to create them or somebody had to protect them, definitely. Yeah. And it is the way it is today because of their sacrifices. So that became my journey. So from there, what I did was I used that story, the story of Kokoda, as the backdrop to every program that I would write, every program from a wellness point of view, but also charitable programs too. So as my story started to evolve on the Kokoda track, I remember one day I was up in Kokoda and I had just built a school. So when I built the school, it meant that I had to go to Port Moresby, buy all the wood, load it on, onto a truck, convinced some of the local guys to give me a hand and we trucked it all the way up into a place called Vesselogo and then we take all the materials off the back of a truck and actually get out there and do the hard work with the hammer and nails and we built a school so the school then gave an opportunity of education to kids so education to me is a big game changer so this is what happened to me I went to university changed me now I was providing that opportunity as well for kids up there in, in, in yeah. the jungle yeah. So the story continues to evolve. And then one day I was in Kokoda, Kokoda village. And this elder from another village down at Kamusi had come up and he had a few people around him. And I thought, oh, oh here we go. And he says, Aiden, what I want you to do is, can you come down to my village? I want you to talk to my village because everybody's hearing some of the stuff that you're doing and we're interested. And I said, no worries. So I walked about eight k's down the road with him and his men into the village. As I got to the outskirts of the village, I could hear the drums beating, I could smell the smoke, so they had the fires going, you know, and it was pretty impressive because they were all dressed in feathers and they also had the bones through the nose again. 
And as I got into the village, in the middle was a lectern. So the elder, he turned around and he says, hey, I want you to go up there and talk to my people. And I said, okay, no worries. So, you know, I talked to them. I talked about, well, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what color your skin is or what religion you are. We're all equal. We're all on this planet. We're all doing the same thing. We're all trying to survive. We all need love. We need warmth. We need shelter. We need food. It's not rocket science. Yeah. Anyway, it went off. They understood what I was saying. And they basically escorted me from the lectern down towards their river. Now, the Kamusi River, when it was in flood, and it was in flood at that time, there's huge rapids. So big swell, big, big waves, you know. And so... The chief escorted me down to the edge of the river. On the edge of the river was this raft. And it was made out of banana plantation stuff. You know, you could see it. There it was sitting there. And on the middle of the raft was a plastic chair. And you know when you get that feeling, you know, oh, this is not going to be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was tethered to the bank. And so the chief came down and he says, okay, Aiden, what I want you to do is sit on the chair, sit on the raft. And I went, okay, no worries. So I sat on the chair. And then all of a sudden, all this noise, all the people started making all this noise. And I says to the chief, I said, well, why are they doing that? And he says, well, what they're doing here is, is that they're calling up their river gods to protect you. Because of the journey that you're on, they believe it, but they want them to come and protect you. And I said, okay, no worries. I, I kind of like that. That's, that's cool. Anyway, the crescendo got higher and higher and higher. And I had this only easy feeling. And the chief with his machete came down and he cut the rope. And what happened then was the raft went straight out into the rapids. Yeah. One thing about Papua New Guinea culture is you cannot show fear. So they watch your eyes. They watch everything. They're brilliant at reading body language. Brilliant at it. And so as the raft goes up and down, up and down, and I'm scared stiff. There's no other yeah. way of saying it. But what I had to do was to show them that I wasn't scared. It was like, you know what? We, we go to school in Ireland every day like this. This is what yeah. we, we go to school on the raft. But it went down the river, and once I was out of sight, I knew then I was in trouble. I had to get off the raft because at the five or six K mark down the river, there was all these big rapids, and I wouldn't have made it. So eventually, I'd get to all these rocks. I'd jump from the raft onto a rock. I'd hang onto it, one rock to another, and eventually, I'd get back onto Terra. Yeah, yeah. So I'd... Once I got my my sense of where I was, then, you know, I calmed down. And then all of a sudden, you know, I looked and smelled for the smoke. And then I made my way back into the village. So when I made my way back into the village, they went mad. They went crazy. And the chief came up and he put his arms around me, you know, a small fella. And I said, so what are they doing now? What are they making that noise? And he says, well, they're really happy to see you because they didn't think they were going to see you again. But it yeah. proves that the river gods listened. And now you're protected. And with that, he presented me with a necklace made out of pig's teeth. And then it was called Udaboroma. So Udaboroma means wild pig. So that's where it came from, you know? Yeah, yeah. So suddenly you had this Irish man who was in the middle of the jungle, in the middle of nowhere, and now he was called Udaboroma, so wild pig. So again, the story continues to evolve. So what was happening for me at the time was I was learning from all these experiences and then bringing them back to the diggers who were still there. Now, Stan Bissett, who fought for the second 14th Battalion on the Kokoda track, an amazing man, he became a great mentor and a man who I'd end up speaking at his funeral later in life. A great man. And I, I said about then recording even more of their stories and writing them and recording. And one thing that always fascinated me was uh, the Battle of Isaraba. You can understand the Battle of Isaraba. Picture this, 420 young diggers, average age 18, 19, 20. And they're sent up there in the middle of the jungle. 
they're hanging on for dear life. Up on the mountains, you've got a Japanese army far more experienced and better supplied, much better weapons because they've got the mountain gun as well, all up on the ridge. So the Australians now at this point in time are 420, they're outnumbered by five and six to one Japanese soldiers. But the more, most important thing here is, is that if those Australian soldiers do not stop the Japanese at that point, there's nothing to stop the Japanese going all the way to Port Moresby and then perhaps take Australia. Now, in their minds, the, the Australian soldiers' minds, they were told that that's what they had to do. They had to stop the Japanese at all costs at that point in time because they would take Australia. That's what they believed. So my fascination was, as I knew the history was, that these diggers that were sitting there 18, 19 years of age, they hadn't had a decent feed for seven or eight days. The uniforms were hanging off them. They had all sorts of problems with their boots, problems with, their, with, with dysentery, with malaria, dengue fever, you name it. And they were hanging in there. They'd lost so much weight. And so my interviews with them was, what was going through your mind as you sat in that foxhole as they filled up with rain? You know, what was going, what was it that kept you going? And every single one of them, when I asked that question, they all said, mateship, mateship, Aiden. That's what kept us going. So no matter how hard it was, we always believed that our backs were covered. We always believed that, you know, my mate would never let the perimeter go. Yeah. That we'd be always there. And that's what we were fighting for. And I said, did you think you were going to die? And they said, of course, we did think we were going to die, yeah. And if we weren't reinforced on the 26th of August, the afternoon of the 26th, well, we would have been dead. We were gone. But we were prepared to do that. We were prepared to sacrifice our lives, which I thought was extraordinary. And it's something that Australians have inside them, you know. It's like that mateship stuff. So when you see the tsunami, when you see the floods, when you see, you know, problems or uh, challenges for neighbours, you're the first people to roll up your sleeves and help them. Yeah. And the greatest thing about Australians is, is that it's not like you're up there looking for rewards. You're not up there looking for um, hero status. It's just, it's inherent in who you are. It's the Australian spirit that I call it. Yeah. And I see this all the time, Alan, on the Kokoda track and, and elsewhere in the blackout. So it's there. People have it. And often it can, unfortunately, it can drop down below skin level. It can go deeper in people. And it's situations like these, when they occur, that's when it all starts to rise. So in light of COVID and in light of all those challenges as well, there's a lot of people out there that have that. They still... I'm not happy with political systems, not happy with what's going on today. And it's now, it's been replaced by anger. You can see it. But, and when I'm on the Kokoda track, this all comes to the forefront. So the journey then continued to grow for me. It went across into using this then into the Simpson Desert. And so I created events in the Simpson Desert where we raised over a million dollars for youth suicide prevention, you know? So it gave me the whole back end to be able to look at, okay, well, here's the gap that we need to close. But this is also where we want to be going. So it's about coaching people to identify where they are currently, how do you close the gap, and then how do you get to that future point? So my whole theory has always been built around when you get lost, you go back to where you went off the road. So it's identifying those factors. So it's about you having the time to sit down and identifying what are the factors back at that point that actually put me off the track that I'm supposed to be on. Yeah. So when you can do that, well, then it leads you towards your happiness. It leads you towards your success as well. And so with the Kokoda track in particular, the story kept going to a stage where I, all of a sudden I had prime ministers that were asking me to speak. I had, you name it, 
there were all people, all these different people coming from corporate worlds. There were people coming from everywhere. Most importantly, though, the ones that I loved were the street kids, the kids that, you know, ultimately had a really bad start in life and they were never going to go anywhere unless yeah. something like this intervened. Yeah. And I had a lot of help from the police. I had a lot of help from different people. I had, I'll tell you one story where a police officer rang me and he said, Aiden, we've got a kid, he's 15, you've got to take him on a Coca-Cola trick. And I said, okay, what's his story? He said, well, he's, he's running around with the wrong crew and he's going to end up, he'll spend the rest of his life in jail. There's no doubt about it. He's going that way. And I said, okay, no worries. So I got in touch with a group and they said, look, we'll have a look at him, but he doesn't talk. He's a problem. And I said, well, no, no, let me go for a walk with him. And I went for a walk with him. And the first question I asked him was, you know, a mathematical question. question. It might have been 320 times 15. And he came out with the answer straight away. Really? Yeah. So... I realized, I said, hang on, I know I, I know this kid. So I went back to the organizer and said, look, this kid has to do the track with me. And they said, oh, I'm not so sure about that. And I said, look, that's one of the pre-courses, otherwise I don't do it. And in the end, they said, okay. So when I got him up on the Gakota track, what I noticed was that, you know, the kid was definitely different. And the cool group of kids didn't want anything to do with him. So they ostracized him, which is what happens in our society, isn't it? You know, when, when somebody's different, we tend to ostracize them. We leave them over there. We don't have a lot to do with them because yeah. they're different. We have to expend energy to get to know them. And we're not going to do that. Yeah. So that's what they did with him. So I watched this, you know, so he's in the purest environment in the world. He turned around to me on day two and he says, Aiden, do you mind if I sleep around the fire with the guys, the porters, the legends? And I said, well, no, not at all, as long as they're okay with it. You know, and he said, yeah, well, they are. And I'd already briefed the boys and they said, look, you know what? Yeah, this guy will make an approach. So when he started sleeping around a fire, what he was doing was he was starting to re-enter into an area. He was trying to become part of a tribe. Yeah. And so I turned around to him and I said, look, if you want to do that, well, then you've got to take on responsibilities. And so I gave the, the jobs. The boys gave him a job of getting the water every day that had to be boiled. Yeah. So suddenly this kid had a responsibility. Because he had a responsibility, then he could get recognition. You know, so he was actually paying. He was he, he was belonged to something. He had a yeah. role, yeah. the role responsibility, and now he's getting recognition. So he was part of them. So suddenly he had he found a tribe. Now going back to what I was talking about from the start, the tribes up there, they're only interested in food, shelter, warmth, love. It's so basic, hmm. but it's who we are as people. We've made it harder, I believe. But this is what they could see in him. He was no different to them. So. The story continued as we walked the Dakota track, you know, this kid now takes on more responsibility and he's taken on a new tribe. So when we got up into Con's Rock, where I always sing Danny Boy, as you remember, yeah. I was singing Danny Boy. And anyway, so the kids are all standing around and I said, look, is there anybody here that wants to say anything? And this little kid came from nowhere. And you know what kids are like, right? Normally when you do that, their heads drop. Oh, don't pick me. Don't pick me. I don't want to say anything. Da, 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 all that kind of thing. This little kid came from nowhere and he jumped up onto a rock and he started belting out, ain't no mountain high enough. Yeah. And it was the most amazing thing. And everybody looked at me because this kid never talked. Yeah. And here he was, he was singing. Yeah. So I said, look, it's going to get more interesting. So when he was finished, he picked up his backpack and off he walked. Now, what happened was that the cool group started to say, hang on a minute, this kid's okay. He's got value. So yeah. what they tried to do was they tried to start bringing him back into their group. 
But he now also recognized that he had value and he was going, no, 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 I'm happy where I am. I found my tribe. Yeah. And so he became really strong and he'd go ahead, put his backpack up the top of the, the mountain and then come all the way back down again. Very similar to what Kurt did. Yeah. He might pick up the backpacks and then help them. So he became a very, very strong person. So when we finished the Kokoda track, we flew back into Brisbane and all our families were there. The parents were there. And I snuck out the back because I had a feeling what was going to happen. So I'm on the way home, driving home. And his mother rang me and she said, hey, I don't know what's happened, but my son has changed. All my life, he has never said, I love you, mom. Once he came through customs, he put his arms around me and he said, I love you, mom. And I said, well, it's about to get a little bit more interesting, you know. Stay tuned. So five days later, I rang her and said, what's she doing now? And she said, well, what he's done is he's drawn up a list of all his loser mates and he's rang them and told them, you're a loser, you're a bad influence on me, don't want anything to do with you anymore. And he went through a whole list. We got him a job and I explained to his mother, I said, you know what, have you worked it out yet? And she said, well, no. And I said, okay, well, your, your son's got autism. So that's the bottom line. And the reason why he has been the way he has been is because he's been ostracized by society. Yeah. If he had been diagnosed from an early stage and people had a bit more understanding, he would have been okay. Yeah. So ultimately, because he hadn't been diagnosed, he was, there was all these problems that started to occur around him. Yeah. Now, we found out he found a tribe that accepted him, gave him the opportunity to work out who he was and where he fitted in. And most importantly, that he belonged somewhere. He now flourished. Yeah. This kid now has gone on, of course, a few years later. He's had a great job. He's never been in trouble with the police again. And it goes on and on and on. Now, I see this all the time with kids who've got issues because in our society, we tend to sit down with these kind of kids and, and appeal to them from an emotional level. But they don't understand emotion. They understand pain. So when I get them on the Kokoda track, when they hear the history and how hard it was for the digger, these kids, it's almost like uh, from an emotional point of view, they latch the emotion, the deep-seated emotion onto the hardship that they're feeling by climbing the mountains and also being reinforced by the hardship of the history. So by the time they reach the end of the track, it's almost like they've had a complete clearance, a catharsis. It's like these are new people and they yeah. go off and they, they, they walk away from the lives they had and the problems that were causing because now they've got new things like empathy and they can actually relate. Yes. So it's like when we talk about athletics, we have a situation where you know, we train hard and there's a fine line. When you go across that physical line, well, viruses that you naturally have in your body that you keep at bay because you're strong immune system, well, when you train too hard, well, that tends to go the opposite way. The virus flourishes, and then before you know it, you've got a cold or flu, you broke down. Your mind's the same. Your mind's got viruses too. And so you often see that, or I often see that in the first three days in the cocoa track where people are talking negatively or they're singing negative songs, and they don't understand why. And this is why, because this stuff comes to the forefront of the, of the mind and then they start getting rid of it. So it becomes this huge clearance process. And it's, it's pretty amazing to watch it. And it's to do with the history, how the history is facilitated and presented. It's, it's a very, very powerful tool. I think um, I, I wanna, you've covered so much territory and I didn't want to interrupt you at all. Uh, but well, I'll take you back to a couple of things. But I, if I can just recount... Maybe I don't know whether you remember our our trek with you with Kirk. You, you mentioned my, our son and how kind of heavily involved he was in helping people every day. Uh, and I remember he was quite perturbed 
at a, probably at a social justice level that some people raced ahead and never helped anyone. Yep. Um, and he he actually uh, I didn't he actually had words to those people and they they just didn't believe that uh, they had to do anything. But it's interesting what you said how you said uh, over time they became part of the group they became part of the process and then I remember the second last day a, a young lady fell and broke her wrist. Yeah. Uh, and the people that were what do you whatever you want to call them the, the cheaters or the hares racing off in front through day seven stayed back and helped that lady reach the, the finish line and it's yeah. kind of really really good example of um of what you're talking about uh, just that yeah it's an interesting one alan because those people hanging back at that point in time they now know they're going to be safe because they've only got one more day to go because when you walk to Kokoda Drag, that first hill, if you remember it, oh. what it yeah, it, it, it starts off a sense of um, insecurity because it's almost like you go, hang on a minute, if it's going to be like this for the next seven or eight days, I'm going to struggle. And so insecurity sits in. So with these people, what they tend to do is they go at their own pace, which is a very easy thing to do. When you've got to walk at somebody else's pace who's struggling, that's a very hard thing to do. So when you get to a point, you come into the village, you feel good about yourself, that's your security. But when somebody moves their cheese in that point in the middle, they don't know how to react to that. And that's what fascinates me. But the people who with one day to go, when they go to help, it's still not, um, it's still not good because they're still now at a point where they feel, well, I've only got one more day to go, now I'm gonna be safe, and now I'm gonna help somebody. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, but it's still based on the fact that they know they're going to be safe. So another perfect example of that is when people have food, they store all the food and, you know, going through day three, day four, day five, then one day to go, they start handing out the food because they know they're not going to need it. Yeah, okay. I often see that as well. That's another thing too. And then the other fascination with group stuff as well is, is that in our society, we tend to uh, identify or allocate who's going to be the weakest member in the group. Because when we do that, we tend to ostracize them a little bit. Then it also makes us feel good. Because as we're going through hardship, we go, yeah, I'm doing it tough, but it could be worse. Look at him or her. Yeah, yeah. Actually makes us feel good. So the skill in that kind of thing, from a facilitation point of view, is how to bring that person back into the group without undoing their learning. Yeah. So that's where it becomes interesting. And you see this all the time. Our society is really weird because we do that. We actually identify, oh yes, that's gonna be that person there is the litmus test. That's gonna make me feel great because I could be like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's it's a fascinating area that one. Yeah, it's just that it all comes out like even um, uh, before we started to record this interview today, you and I had a, a conversation before that, and um, I told you that, um, and I think you know that I'm in the process of. Uh, I mean, the fourth edit of my book about about my uh, police life and life at uh, the courage the courage to lead. It's called the the resilience and compassion in police command. Um, and one of the chapters in that book is about my our experience with you on the Kokoda Trail. And yeah. I'm so I'm so um, so relieved to hear what you said about that because that first day I write about it in the book. <laughs> that first that first day I thought I'm not gonna like I was fit. I was really really fit. Um, and I thought I'm not going to make it. This is this is hell. <laughs> it was I was trying to I was trying to do too much on that first day, and it just was a really good reckoner that day. Well, the thing is, Al, though, look, when you think about it, right, you're going up there into an environment that's got mountains and hills you've never seen like before in your life. 
then when you get off that plane, you're hit immediately with the humidity. Yeah. So you're trying to deal with humidity. You've also probably had lots of medicines put into your body and all sorts of diff different needles by doctors saying you need all these inoculations, all that kind of thing. So your body is still trying to come to terms with all of that. Then all of a sudden, you're smacked with this intensity of trying to pull all this together to climb this amazing mountain that's like yeah. trying to walk through an oven. So your body, yeah, yeah but that's the thing. Like, so your body's trying to get to a state of homeostasis. So balance. How do I get myself into a situation of balance? Now, your mind is screaming at you because the body's dictating through the pain. That, oh, I'm going to struggle here. This is not right. But it's fascinating. When you remove all those um, crutches, you actually succeed. So by the time you get to the top of that hill, you start working out principles such as no use worrying about the future because I don't have control of the future. I've got no control of the top of the mountain. I've got control of where I am right now, one yes. foot in front of the other. And then eventually you get there and then you go, hang on a minute. And then you adapt to that process. And then the next day it gets easier. And then by day three, you're more efficient. And then it gets easier again. And then you think, hang on a minute. Now I've come to terms with who I am. Yes. Yeah. So as you know, you often see people up there who will big note themselves. There's no point in doing that because when you get up there, nobody cares. You don't yeah. get a medal for getting into the village. You know, first, who cares? The, the heroes are the ones lying in the in the cemetery at Bamana at the yeah. end. Yeah. You know, so so you learn humility. You learn mindfulness. You learn about being present. You know. So these are all skills that we all have, but they get lost in our crazy society or our busy society. So this is what happens when you go up there. It allows you to reset to who you always were. So. You, you've become uh, acquainted again with who you actually are. Not what society tells you you are, or not what's written on your business card. Yes. Up there, nobody cares. You, you don't hand out a business card up there because nobody cares. I'm the CEO, who cares? No one cares, you know? So that's what it was. What, what I'll, um, you're very good at, at, at what you do. You're amazing, but probably one of the things I really wanted to do on this is, um, is how did you get like this? So you yeah. kind of you've given me a few little hints here. So let let me uh, let me just ask you a couple of questions. You you identify that this young fifteen year old boy straight away was um, autistic uh, um, through through the questions you asked him. Um, but you gave the hint in 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 the probably first ten minutes that you're you you um, suffer from Asperger's as well. Yeah. Um, so do you want to tell people what that is? When did you when did you find out that you had that, and did you have lived experience with being ostracised because you had that? Very good question, and the answer is yes, yes, yes. So, Asperger's is an interesting one. So we think Robin Williams, we think Bill Gates, we think it's it's uh, Einstein was Asperger's as well. So the ability to think from a logical point of view. So when I was a kid, so when I was eight nine years of age, I often experienced bullying. Now, my mind was logically evolved, so I would look at it from a logical point of view and say, I can't understand why I'm being bullied or why I've been chased off from school. I'm a good kid. I get on with people, people know me. Why would they do this? Why, why, why? And so I couldn't understand that. So at that time when I was growing up in Dublin, it was a time when you know people were starting to buy cameras you know, to take photographs. And in those good old days, you actually had to process the film, right? So. What I did was, I remember looking at a movie on TV, I think it might have been John Wayne, it was Western, and everybody was afraid of him. And I thought, there's something there. 
I took a photograph of him, his face. And then what I did was I went up to the bathroom when I had the film um, done. I took the photograph and I tried to compare my face to his. And then I realized there was something in this. So from an Asperger's point of view, we don't recognize facial expressions. So you think about that. So we don't hold eye contact and we don't hold or we don't understand facial expressions. So here I was comparing my face to his and I put on his face and I continued to mimic that. So the next day when I was walking home from school, I had a mirror and I took the photograph out and I created that face and it didn't chase me. So I got no bullying that time. So then I realized it had something to do with my face. So then when I got home, my mother met me at the door and she had to have a school and I can't talk to you. And I ran up to the mirror and yeah, there, there was the face. So now I knew it had something to do with my facial expressions. Because as spiritual kids, kids who are on the ASD spectrum, they don't recognize facial expressions. They deal with logic. So they don't deal with emotions. So you might turn around to me and you, I say, Al, how are you going? And you say, well, not so good. From my point of view, I'd say, well, hang on a minute. Logically, how can you be not so good? You're going good because you've got food on the table. Look at this millions of kids in Africa or somewhere else that are starving. Mm. So later on in life, I would have to learn emotion. So that if I said that, whoa, his reaction is this. Therefore, that's an emotional reaction. So that's how I learned it. So then where we go, we learn from patterns. So if one, two, three, we know four, five, six is going to follow. So I became an expert at studying people. And most importantly, so what, when I was only 11 years of age, highly intelligent kid, what I found was I'd go into exams and I was getting 99 out of 100. But that's not cool. So yeah. to be accepted, I dumbed myself right down. So I got 50. When I got 50, I was hidden in the class and I was like everybody else. Yeah. Even though I would only ask, I would only answer 50% of the questions, guaranteeing me 50%. Yeah. So this is how my life evolved. So then I was studying psychology when I was only 10 and 11 and 12, because I was trying to work out why people were hurting each other. And so it kind of evolved from there. That's where it came from. So I became an expert at dealing with people and understanding people's behavior. And then later on, it would get involved in, um, in, in a structural way as well. But what I learned was that, well, I could understand human behavior, but more importantly, I could read people from a postural point of view because I studied posture. I could now see how the mind would also affect the posture and then vice versa. So then I could see before you even came near me, I could see from your posture, the type of person or the type of experiences you had in your life. So I could see the patterns that were already etched in your face. So this is where it, it becomes really interesting. So then I started to deal with what was called the success factors. So understand that we Asperger kids, they have a topic or a subject of their choice and they become really, really strong on it. Mine was history and human performance. So what makes people tick? What makes people achieve? So then I look at the likes of Bill Gates who was successful in one area, one area only. I'm not saying for a minute that Gates is successful. Um, Anyway, so I, I would later meet him. But anyway, um, I would then look at that kind of person and then move it back through his life and see where the pattern was. Yeah. So there's about seven success factors. And if you don't have those success factors, you're not going to be successful. So I worked that out. So my subject being history, World War Two, you look at it and you say, well, why didn't these people see we were heading towards war? Because there's the pattern. So I that's what I focused on. So with people on the Gokota track, it's like a walking experiment for me. I can read them like an absolute book and I can see three and four stages ahead of them. And then more importantly, when I'm on stage, now I could be speaking to 1,400 people on stage and I could feel it. 
I can feel the energy and I can feel what people are thinking. And so I can adjust my presentations as, as I'm speaking. And that spins people out because they go, how do you do that? I say, well, because I've got so many real life experiences, things that I've experienced. It's like a library. Yeah. But I feel from what people do, how they sit in the seat, how they react, the facial expressions, that now I need to adjust it because this is where it needs to go. And it's, it absolutely spins people out. But that's where I spent a lot of time working on the success factors through my ASD. So ASD, Asperger's, was only diagnosed later in life. And then the lights went on for me and went, hang on a minute. This was the reason why I went through so much of this stuff. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then I ended up working with, a lot with ASD kids, you know, and showing the parents that this is not, this is not a bad thing. What became really interesting, uh, Al, one for you, is that when I had the New South Wales Police, for example, on the track, one of the first times, I was talking to some of the interrogators and asked them, how do you um, judge whether somebody is telling you the truth or not? And I said, well, I, normally the easy indicator is if somebody can't hold eye contact, then they're normally guilty. And I said, but what about somebody who's got asperges? They don't hold eye contact. And I went, what? And I said, happy right. So there's your problem in society. So there's all these different things. But so for me, I had to learn that. There was a learned thing to hold eye contact. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't know that at all. So um, yeah. thank you for taking us down. I mean, there, there's so many kind of little rabbit warrens we could go down. But one of the things I really want to um, kind of explore, and it's probably the greatest recognition of what you do, is how do you... Aidan Grimes, the Irishman, um, yep. uh, who's learning Australian history. How do you get in the in the front door of someone like Stan Blissett, uh, Ralph Honor, I think um, Char Charles Butler, I think you said. How, uh, yeah, these these heroic um, Australian soldiers that led our response to Kokoda you know, defence against the Japanese. How do you how do you get in their front door? And ultimately, you know, the greatest one I think you talk about is Stan Bissett became a mentor of yours, and mm -hmm. his family asked you to to do his eulogy. Yeah. Um, so can you just talk me? Maybe that's a lot of questions there, but how yeah. do you? Let's just talk about Stan Bissett. Who is Bissett? Who is he? Mm. Uh, what's what's your knowledge of his history, and how do you get in his front door and have this beautiful friendship? Okay. Well, Stan was a great man. He, he was, um, you know, he lost his brother on the Kokoda track. He was a very dutiful officer. He was an adjutant and he was an intelligence officer for the 2nd 14th Battalion. So on the Kokoda track, when his brother was killed, word had come back to Stan. Stan had been given the order to reconnoiter a withdrawal position after the Battle of Isarawa. So you can imagine a man who's now been told that his brother has just been killed or is badly wounded. And he continues to reconnoiter position. So once he has his duty done, then he goes down to the RAP, the regimental aid post, where his brother is there mortally wounded, and he'll sit with him, and then he'd sing Danny Boy as his brother passes away in his arms. So Stan would then go on fight in Shaggy Ridge and other areas in Papua New Guinea, and then he became this bloke at the end of the war who continued to talk about his mates. So you'll find that with a lot of them, that Aiden, it's not about me, it's about the blokes who never made it back home. Please don't forget them. So this is what this thing is all about. It's making sure they're never forgotten. And that's what his motivation was. He was so good and his memory was so strong that 
one of the principles that I have is integrity. So I will not negotiate on integrity for anyone. And I will never sell myself for a price because once you do, it'll always have a price. So they're key principles. They pick up on this and they know it. So they always welcomed me. So when I met Stan, for example, I went to see Stan on the Sunshine Coast. He knew who I was. He knew I was different because I had an accent. And then from there, it kind of developed. He knew some of the stuff that I'd done. I was open with him and we'd have a beer. And then it developed from there. So his whole thing was that he would tell me the history. He would tell me what happened to him. He would tell me all his experience that happened up there that he, he could uh, pass on. Because his thing again was, Aiden, I'm not going to be around forever, but I want this to stay alive. I want my mates to be remembered. I want my brother never to be forgotten. And so then it would open the door to Phil Roden. It would open the door to Ralph Honor. Ralph Honor was amazing because when he heard I was Irish, he said, well, my family, we're from Ireland as well. And so there was an instant connection. So I built on that and, and Ralph was an interesting guy, you know, so to me, he was ultimately one of the greatest leaders in Australian history. And so it, it evolved from there. And then before I knew it, I started to develop a reputation. So I was very honest. I'm very direct. And I, like I say, integrity is the most important thing. So they knew that. And also there was other people playing in this market that weren't, yeah. that didn't have integrity. So ultimately they were playing me off against them and they were going, well, no, he's the one that's got it. So it went from there and evolved from there. Before you knew it, I was ingrained with the battalions. But I was also learning. I was studying history. So you got to understand, with ASD, Asperger's, I've got a photographic memory. So my history sticks in my head. And I've got a great head for numbers. So I can quote all sorts of different battalions, where they were, who was where, all that kind of thing. And nobody else seems to be able to do that. Nobody else seems to be able to do the history without reading it in our books. And I respect that. I've got no problems with that. But... The journey that I was on was all about the honesty. And so with Stan in particular, the doors would open into different battalions. And then it would, that's how it happened. So all of a sudden, this Irish bloke, you know, because the Irish bloke was different because he was taking on the story, but he was also adding to it. And then what I was finding was I had this natural knack of being able to break down people's walls. So before you knew it, they were telling me their stories they'd never talked before about. I'll give you an example of that was Queensland Police had me do a um, presentation one time. And they tapped me on the shoulder and said, look, in the front, there'll be five diggers that fought on the track. So it's probably a lot of pressure on you. And I said, I don't feel pressure from that. So I presented. And, da, da, da. and when they heard the presentation, the diggers at the end came up to me and they started to tell me their stories and they told me everything. And their kids turned around and said, Aiden, I've never heard my father speak like this. They've yeah. never talked about it. And here they are. And they related to me. They, they absolutely related to me, you know. And the most important thing, Al, is, is that I respect their story like you wouldn't believe. So they know that and I'd protect it until the cows come home too. You know, so I think when you come from that kind of background, that pureness, they're more likely to give you the stuff that they wouldn't give anybody else, you know, because yeah. I'm not going to do anything with it except use it to teach, you know. Yeah. It's bigger do than you, me. When you, um, I might just start, uh, it's a little bit of a sideways, but um, when you interview these these diggers, yeah. Uh, do, do they let their kids, family be around or is it one-on-one? -on -one? No, it's normally one-on-one, -on -one, to be honest with you. Yeah, one-on-one. -on -one. You'll find that the young kid or, the, sorry, the kids or, you know, their kids will bring them to a meeting place or a location and then they'll leave them be. And right. I find that when the kids are out of earshot, then they'll sing. They'll tell me everything. Yeah. They're still is, is, your, um, is your meetings or interviews with the diggers recorded so that the kids find out what the story is? 
Yeah, so they're all recorded. So I've got about 70 of them. So oh, they're wow. all recorded. Yeah, yeah. And so they're all, all, all recorded. So at any point in time, they can have them. Anybody can have them. Um, like I say, it's not my story. Um, and you'll probably see that anytime I quote or anytime I post anything about them, I'll always say their story. Because yeah. it's their story. All we are is a storyteller. Yeah. But it's their story. So and I, I respect that. So so where I'm going with it is to make sure that the story stays alive. And that's the promise I made to Stan, you know? Yeah. Okay. So I mean there's so yeah. so many places we can go with but um you talked about like you're up to 125 now, is it 125? Yeah, just finished 125th um, three, four weeks ago, yeah. I think what struck me about it, and I might just, um, I mean, we're, we're, we're not too bad for time, so I might just take you down this little um, this little direction. Yeah. The thing that impressed me about your preparation was you had two special forces medics on our, on our, on our um, journey. Um, you had backup helicopters ready to to come and get people if they needed to but at the same time i think you're just saying 125 126 uh expeditions no one's ever not finished um so what um can you talk us through you know a, a proper I suppose, a summarized fashion how do you prepare and okay. how do you uh, that's a great question and it's one that fascinates everybody because the most important thing with anything that you do from a mission point of view, from um, putting a group together, is making sure that the standards in place, making sure that everybody knows what those standards are and that you get buy-in from the group into those standards. Now, how I do it, and I do it subtly, is, is that I use the history. So, okay, Al, you know what? Yeah, you come up here and yeah, you've got a blister. Now, it could be a lot worse because you could be getting shot at. So that automatically sets a standard, you know, that says, yeah, you know what? And it gets you to think about the history so that when we go to places like Israel, you are also now becoming part of developing that group culture. So that culture is developed based on you and your sacrifices, your sweat and your hardship going up and over the hill. But I'm beside you as well. So we're going through this process together. So it becomes this group culture. So before we even get to that stage, the preparation, the training, making sure everybody's fit, three months training at least, because if you're not going to be fit, what's the point in going up there? You know, you're going to let everybody down. You're going to let the history, the story down as well. And there's a lack of respect. Mm. So making sure that you've got all the correct information, the training, you've got the backup of the two lads, the two, two SAS guys, but also the doctor as well. So at any point in time, if somebody does have a drama, we can actually do something better right there in the field. Yeah. So my thing is always the ASD always watching always watching 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 so it's almost like a, a viral check on you on every group member making sure talking to them seeing where they're at te testing the temperature where's the thermostat who is the thermostat within the group you know does yeah. that thermostat then reflect where the temperature of the group is and if it doesn't why not move on where else do you go so it's all these risk analysis that i call them always constantly assessing that's the way my brain is so that's what makes me different to everybody else. And then the history. So if Al is doing a hard and he's sitting down, you know, and I can see it, I want to acknowledge that. I'll sit down and say, you're not going to believe it. Let me tell you a story about this particular area. In, in 1942, we had two guys, 18 years of age. Now, one of them had his mate on his back, and he was trying to climb this hill as he was badly wounded with his mate in his back, which is where you're sitting right now. Yeah. Hell of a story. Hell of a story, Al, isn't it? 
and then I'd leave you. Yeah. And it's just enough for you to be motivated to go, you know what, this is, this is amazing, you know, and then it motivates you. So it's the knowledge of the track, but it's also walking the talk. It's being able to walk the talk because there's so many people in our society right now that are talking, but clearly not walking it. Yeah. People wake up to that. You know, what I do is I term a practical intelligence. Don't tell me, show me. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a difference, you know, show me. Because when you show people, they suddenly realize that, well, hang on a minute, this is an area that I would never have been exposed to. You know, I stayed within my comfort zone, but now he's shown me that I can get outside my comfort and actually be okay and grow. So, you know what I mean? So they're all the elements that go into this. So it's, a lot of people make that mistake. You'll see other operators, they'll be advertising the track. And good luck to everybody that goes with them, you know, but you miss out on about 75, 80% of it if you don't come with us. That's why I see it personally. Because yeah, yeah. It becomes that life-changing journey that we all talk about. Because yeah. when I look back on it now, the amount of people that still refer to it, you know, after 28 years, hey, this changed my life. This is what I did. I changed this decision. I did this, I did that. Look yeah. at this legacy. Look at the kids who lost their parents in the line of duty. Yeah. They walk the track. They find out that they're part of this bigger family. They find out that they're not alone. They find out that they're actually able to talk to people about it mm. because they've shared this experience that nowhere else would they have gone. They yeah. talk about, you know, um, they don't go to counseling. They don't go to uh, psychologists because they don't understand it. Whereas when I'm up here and all these guys knew my dad or my mum and here yeah. they are talking, and now I'm able to talk to them, all of a sudden they feel, you know, more energized, but more importantly, they feel like, hope there's hope again you know yeah yeah no it's a, a truly wonderful thing what you do um as part of the whole thing that you do with um your, your, all your expeditions on the Kokoda track but in particular your police legacy stuff is um that makes a huge difference so let's um we, well, we might start wrapping this up but um so before we started this interview you talked about possibly what's next on the horizon for Aiden Grimes like um uh, I, I don't want to put it on you, but how old are you? You don't have to tell us. No, well, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I refuse to go there because everyone asks me what age I am. And, and to me, it's just another number. Yeah, yeah. I think what you've got to be really careful of is aligning a belief to a number. So some people go, oh, my God, I'm this number. And then they start living that number. So it becomes their perception. So I stay well and truly away from that. I can yeah. still do the things that I did when I was 24, 25. Yeah, no, knees, you're amazing. Yeah, my knees are hurt me, but, you know, besides from that, no, still as fit as You can tell just, um, uh, you know, the video on this one, you can tell how alive you are just in your face and your eyes <laughs> and, and, and your excitement and the, and the way your brain works is um, is refreshing yeah. for all of us. So so what's next? What's next okay. for Aiden Grimes? Well, I've been I've been doing a lot of stuff with PTSD. So I've been doing a lot of stuff with Darwin and Robertson Barracks and Inaugurate with you know the soldier recovery centers and also with police as well. So what I've done now is I've just started a master's in counseling because I want to learn the new skills that I can then apply to help these people on a bigger scale. A lot of my stuff is all group stuff. I continue to do and use the Kokoda tracks in my classroom, my back garden with everything else that I do, but I really want to learn those new skills now so it can continue to grow. Because I've always had this belief that, you know, when you think you know it all, you're dead. Yes. So I'm one of those people, they said when I was growing up in Dublin that I could never study. Well, I proved them wrong. Now what I want to, I'm chasing a PhD and that's where I'm going to go. So 
ultimately, I want to be able to write a thesis on the use of um, history, high performance, recreational therapy is what they're calling it now, and, and uh, develop programs where we actually get more and more people active. So instead of giving people tablets, instead of giving them needles, what we want to do is actually start building through the use of exercise and nutrition, that kind of stuff, all the healthy stuff, you know, so we prevent rather than allow it to happen, you know. Wonderful, wonderful. So we're going to have to call you Dr. Aidan Grimes, are we? <laughs> <laughs> it's scary. <laughs> I think it. I think it. I can't. I can't wait to do it actually, because um, you are a scientist and a, a master of um, everything about us uh, as human beings. So um, you, we still haven't got very deep into you personally, but you have shared. A, has shared some stuff. So let's start to wind it up now. Yeah. What I always ask um, someone such as yourself, like you are a leader and that's why you're on the show, who who does empower others to to become better people, really, mm -hmm. um, in whatever environment that is. And it's so obvious about what you've talked about today. What would you advise? I mean, it doesn't matter what stage of life you're at, but if you if you were trying to give advice to an 18-year-old person, human being, yep. that, that wanted to make, to kind of live your life a little bit, what what would what would your one word, what would your one bit of advice be? Okay, when we talk about um, we talk about achievement, we talk about leadership. One of the biggest problems we have in society right now is that somebody does a leadership course on a weekend and they've got a certificate to say they're a leader. Okay, I disagree with that. So my word of advice and my kind of thing would be self belief is crucial. So we often talk about stones. We throw a stone into a river, it creates a ripple. That creates another ripple, it creates another ripple. And that's all often used as a metaphor for success or achievement or motivation. My thing is, it's not just about you throwing the stone, it's about how hard you throw the stone. So my advice to kids, my advice to anybody would be, get up, stand up somewhere and throw a stone as hard as you can. Because that's all we are. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we're only stone throwers, you know? And life is short. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it comes back to you how badly you want it. So self-belief becomes this big thing. Do not allow anybody take your belief, your self-belief from you. You know, never negotiate integrity for anyone because that's who you are. Once you sell your soul once, it'll always have a price on it. Learn from that because that's the most important thing. You know, be able to say no. It's good to be able to say no. It really is. And that's powerful because then it tells me and it tells most people that you have a great understanding of who you are. But spend the time on getting to know you, not who society wants you to think who you are. You spend time in yourself. And the only way you're going to do that is by <clears throat> getting out there, exploring, um, trying different things, you know, making sure you're fit and healthy, keeping all the good principles together. Because the good principles are getting lost at the moment in society. You need to understand who you are from all those different parts of the of the puzzle because fitness and health is what stands to you and it will for many, 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 many years, you know. Mm -hmm. um, that's a really good go throw that how hard you throw the stone. You're only yes. here for a short time, go go your hardest eventually. Yes. But essentially and have the self-belief. I might just finish with this one. Um you, you gave the story of um you were good at identifying uh what the patterns of people and what the seven success factors are what mm -hmm. are they what are the seven success factors <clears throat> well i knew you put me on the spot no one <laughs> <laughs> well clearly one of them is self-belief so self-belief you have to have self-belief you're going to be successful 
you've got to have determination. So term, determination will 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 uh, basically dictate where and how far you're going to go. You've got to have motivation. So there's two types of motivation: intrinsic and extrinsic. Intrinsic so that comes from within. That's the best type because then you're motivated by yourself. You're not reliant on somebody outside saying this, 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 this. Motivation becomes a major thing. Then you have things like um, discipline. So discipline, the ability to keep going, the endurance to keep going. Then you've also got resilience. So when you get knocked back down, it's how you get back up again. That's what we look at. You know, how can you turn these situations? And then being positive. So positiveness is one of the most important things because the world is full of negativity. If you listen to media, every man, it just go crazy. So being positive, you know, understanding positivity is what makes the world go around. And there you have the ability then to influence because when you have those factors, it's like a magnet. It attracts people. Yes. A lot of these factors get lost in society's journeys, you know. So when you go through life, you know, they'll get knocked back. And if you listen to people who knock you back, well, then, you know, they're setting you back on your journey. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. Don't allow that to happen. It's like learn from nature you, you take a plant away from light it's got two choices it can either die or it can grow back towards the light and that's what we have to learn we have to learn that grow back towards the light don't die you plant a seed you got to water that seed to grow people are the same whenever ideas somebody can go back and knock some of the greatest ideas never got off the, the starting block because somebody came along and went nah yeah, only for yeah. years time to go that was a great idea and the reason being is they didn't water the seed to grow. And these this, these things are all out there in nature. When you find your passion, it's like a river through the jungles in Papua New Guinea. When the river flows in Papua New Guinea, there's nothing will stop it. Nothing will stop a river that's flowing in flood. But it's the same with us. When we ha- are tuned into our rivers, which is basically our passion, there's nothing can stop you. Passion will always win, always, no matter what. And so... Well said. We'll yeah, it will, and and you live it. It becomes part of you. It becomes your veins, you know. So you never let people knock you off your pathway, you know, because ultimately it's because they've got an interest in doing so. Either they want to sell you some other viewpoint, either they've got a bias, or it goes on and on and on. But these are all parts of you growing as a person, you know. Very important. Well done, mate. I think that's a great way. Uh, and I, we hadn't rehearsed at all, but you just rattled off the seven success factors pretty well <laughs> and, and and with some personal um, uh, stories. So thank you very much, Aidan, for being on the Courage to Lead um, interview series today. Uh, anyone anyone that uh, really loves um, what they've heard today with Aidan uh, on your favourite um, streaming platform, either Apple, Spotify, or Google, please leave a rating and reviews because this will allow Aiden's message, very important message, to spread far and wide. So thank you very much, Aiden, uh, and that concludes our interview today. Thanks very much, Al. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure, absolute pleasure. How good was that? As Aiden says during the interview, Aiden is a person who walks the talk. He is definitely not a fake. Aidan has used his unique skills and personal challenges to honour the Australian wartime history of the World War II battle on the Kokoda Track. Key human traits such as belief in your mates, sacrifice and courage were displayed by our diggers in the Kokoda Track during World War II. Aidan uncovers these same traits in each of the Kokoda Track expeditions he has done with those fortunate people who have chosen to subject themselves to that experience and find out so much more about themselves during that journey. There is no space for titles or rank on the Kokoda track. 
Everyone is the same, and there are lessons to learn. It doesn't come down to who is first up the mountain or first into the camp at night. It is about a personal and group journey, one step at a time. Throughout this interview, Aidan talks about the seven success factors. Right at the interview, I asked Aidan to highlight what these seven success factors are. They are self-belief, determination, motivation both intrinsic and extrinsic, discipline, endurance, resilience and positiveness because there is so much negativity in today's world. If you hold these seven success factors, you will have the ability to influence others. When you find your passion, nothing will stop it. Passion will always win. Never let other people knock you off your pathway. I hope you've enjoyed today's interview as much as I had. Until next time, see ya.